What's up, gang? Thanks for listening to The Undiplomatic Podcast, the show with undiplomatic takes about the foreign policy scene. I'm your host, Van Jackson, and today we've got the crew back after what feels like a long time. Kiara Mitchell. Hello. Gabby Magnuson. Hey. Jake Dello. Salutations. And Hunter Marsden. Hello. So uh, two two quick hits that are related, and they're sort of New Zealandy, but through the looking glass, the nature of things these days is that New Zealand shit and Pacific shit and great power shit and U.S. shit all kind of intersect and China shit, obviously. A few days ago, but by the time you hear this, it'll be like a week or so ago, Jacinda Ardern, Prime Minister of New Zealand, she gave this big foreign policy speech, quote unquote big, at the uh, NZIIA, it's, what is it, New Zealand Institute of International Affairs. They're like this foreign policy convening organization in New Zealand. And in the speech, people seem to like it in New Zealand. I'm, I'm kind of want to shit all over it, but not 100%. She, <laughs> so the, the thing, so I have like multiple critiques. One, like there was no strategy there, right? There was no through line. There was no driving concept. She laundry the second half of the speech was like laundry listing a series of actions that were mostly con- self contradictory. Yep. So it's like, how does this all add up? It read like it was a, a bureaucratic speech listing bureaucratic activities, which is very ho hum at best. And at a time when like there's so much going on and we really need sharp thinking, and there it, there was none really in evidence. But the novelty and the reason why it got attention, and our man Pete McKinsey is actually um, writing a piece about this in The Guardian that's going to come out by the time this episode comes out. But the the reason why it's... Sorry, who's Pete? Who's Pete? <laughs> oh, that prick oh, that, oh, that, that abandoned us. Oh, that one. The podcaster formerly known as Pete McKinsey. Yeah. yeah. So Jacinda name-dropped Indo-Pacific 15 times in the speech, literally. And this is novel in the sense that no sitting New Zealand official had really used the term much. Uh, The foreign minister used it recently um, in a neutral way slash favorable way, I guess. And Jacinda made it very explicit. She says, like, you know, the larger Indo-Pacific is New Zealand's home. We embrace the concept of Indo-Pacific. The rub uh, is that Indo-Pacific, she explicitly defined what she means by this as contra what like everyone else means by this and she was defining it in terms of like something that's genuinely participatory multilateral inclusive that it's a it's a frame of reference for an enlarged space of win-win cooperation basically and i like that that sounds good it's very hard to be opposed to that it would you would think right but that's obviously like we've talked on the show i've written pieces about this right if you're tracking indo-pacific at all you know that it's a way of expanding a field of play and the u.s has been explicit about this for competition with china right which means it is not inclusive of china it's a way of getting around the fact that you lose against china if you're only focused on balancing in northeast asia or containing in the south china sea or contesting in the himalayas the premise of indo-pacific is like you need the broader field of play if you want to functionally balance or encircle or contain china but there's a public marketing aspect to the indo-pacific that is in fact, claiming to be inclusive, particularly in the Biden administration, right? It's completely possible that Biden's people largely do see the Indo-Pacific in an inclusive way. It's just that's not what its legacy is, and that's not why most people care about it. Like, if you can coordinate an Indo-Pacific-wide vaccine distribution program, obviously no one's going to be opposed to that, but that's not controversial, Right. What's controversial is the origins of this that linger or the way that the Pentagon thinks about this. Right. Which is to say, like, most people care about using this phrase and most people are adamant about using this phrase precisely because of the connotation expanded field of play exclusive of China. So there's a weird thing going on here where Jacinda has endorsed the term that everyone wants to use, but is trying to invert its meaning. Um, and inverting it in a way that I like, but that also is not going to be what other people do. So there's a little bit of like rhetorical ships passing in the night to me, it seems like. But uh, that was that was like the noteworthy thing. A lot of people think it's just Jacinda herself. 
But this seems to be New Zealand's way of saying a lot without actually saying anything at all and not doing a lot with it. You know, like she can she can say all of this she likes, but our foreign policy hasn't really shown any of it. That's what bugs me a little bit. Like she outlined principles of what she thought were important for peace, principles that she thought were important for New Zealand to guide New Zealand's conduct. But New Zealand has not acted consistent with those principles. And I mean, at times, yeah, but at times, no, right? Particularly when it comes to truth to power with China. And this this notion that like an expansive list of partners as possible, it was, a, it was like a nod toward keeping China in the tent or whatever. Inclusion meant not exclusion, which meant not sort of like uh, framing out China. And the difficulty with that is China's a fucking, CCP is a fucking neo-fascist regime, right? Xi Jinping is an ethno-nationalist mm, draped in yeah. neo-Leninism. Where's the virtue in being inclusive of the fascists? That's not a thing, you know? That's like dumb liberalism. That's not, that's not, that's not good. Yeah, exactly. And there's no acknowledgement of any of those tensions or contradictions within what she laid out. I wouldn't even, this would roll off of me like no big deal, except that, you know, the speech claimed we were at an inflection point. I think we passed the inflection point like five years ago, maybe. But if you think that we're at an inflection point, like she claimed in the speech, you got to show some critical thinking, man. If you're going to invoke a concept, follow through with what you think the logic of it is, you know, and there was none of that there. So it sounds like I'm shitting on the speech. I kind of am. I didn't hate it, but like there were, it left a lot wanting. I mostly hate the fact that other people like it. I think that's what pisses me off. Um, how did you pronounce her name? Oh man, don't do this. <laughs> <laughs> don't Jake do and I were texting like, hold on. <laughs> it's Ardern. Ardern. No, for for, for, for Ardern. An, uh, American Ardern. Yeah, Ardern. <laughs> Missing the R's. The uh, R's. Yeah. R's. <laughs> Try uh, my name Hunter. I mean, I go to coffee shops and uh, people always think I'm Andrew. Hunter Mazden. I have to say, <laughs> I have to emphasize the lack of the R. So second quick hit sort of tied into this. It's still Kiwi. Um, Catherine Churchman, who's one of my colleagues at uh, Victoria University of Wellington. She's a pretty sharp China hand. And on Twitter, Catherine pointed out that there was a fucking Xi Jinping thought meeting in Auckland at the Metropolis Museum. And uh, one of the, it wasn't a big gathering. It looked like it was a couple dozen people, but one of the people in attendance who spoke was a former labor MP, Raymond Huo. And it's not unique to New Zealand. It's not even unique within New Zealand. And it's also not prominent. This is the kind of thing that you know, like a lot of people, especially if you're anti-China, you care about CCP influence, United Front Department work overseas and all that stuff. Xi Jinping thought is like conceptually vapid. Like we said, you know, it's Leninist rhetoric wrapped around blood claims of that are basically fascist. And uh, so like, it's not these are not good ideas. Xi Jinping's thought is not something that's legitimate. The thing that disturbs me more than this, though, one is the sort of racist adjacent reaction that a lot of people have to it. Once you start worrying about shit like this, 1% of the Chinese diaspora meeting to talk favorably about Xi Jinping shit, it becomes very hard not to vilify the entire ethnic diaspora. And like nobody's really on guard against that. Nobody is taking an anti-racist standpoint in any of this stuff. And I feel like that's really important because you don't want to play into the hands of like the New Zealand version of Steve Bannon in in taking seriously a kind of China threat. So that's a, that's a problem. I'm concerned about this too. I'm more concerned about like how we react to it. Because even in the Cold War, the height of the Cold War in America, we had a communist party, you know? Was it popular? No. Why? Because they had shit fucking ideas, you know? Also, there's like a longer history there. But the idea that like, you should be stopping people in your country from meeting to talk about shitty fascist ideas is itself kind of fascist, right? So you have to let these bullshit meetings go on, 
But what you don't have to do is let your politicians and former politicians and influencers be involved in them. Like there needs to be firewalls against that stuff. Xi Jinping thought should not be infiltrating the U.S. government in any way. And one of the overreactions that I saw to what Catherine was flagging was that like, um, I mean, Amory Brady did this freaking out about how like sitting current MPs should not be allowed to go to Xi Jinping thought meetings. I agree, but that's not what was flagged here. It was a former official, right? So it's like, there's still a legitimate problem here. That's not cool, but that's different than if it's actually sitting officials, you know? And that's what happens when you start doing the hyperbole. The bigger thing, this meeting, as fucking gross as it is, is not as concerning to me, A, from the reaction that we have, but B, when I went through the Auckland airport a year ago, Xi Jinping thought manual was for sale in the bookstore. What the fuck is yeah. that shit? Yeah. You know? Yeah. Who gives two fucking shits in Australia too, by the way? I don't know if it still is, but it was a year ago. We, <laughs> Who the fuck? The Chinese embassies in these countries had a fucking coup infiltrating the bookstores at the airports with Xi Jinping's little red book, you know? That's fucked up. There's no reason for that. That's pro that's selling fucking fascist propaganda on behalf of a foreign government in your country. Yeah. What's the point like I don't know. That's that to me is like a bigger thing than a few dozen people meeting to cheer bullshit. I don't know. It's like simultaneously worth flagging and worrying about and not over worrying about. I don't know if it's worth worrying about, but it it comes in roundabouts, right? Because last week, there was quite a big firestorm online about an RNZ article in this Radio New Zealand, our, our equivalent to the BBC, mm. where they highlighted that Chinese students, well, not really students, have been coming into lectures and getting you know, information about anti-CCP lecturers. Oh, and incidentally, not, Kathleen, Catherine yeah. Churchman was quoted in that same piece. Exactly. And it's not much on its own. But I agree with you that it helps stoke the wrong sort of sentiment. But we can't ignore that it's happening. Like, we just need to find a way to find out that it's happening without vilifying our Chinese New Zealanders, right? That's the idea. Yeah, yeah. That's, what, that's what's missing, and that's the opportunity, I think. Every mm. country has failed. It's only really the West that is up in arms about this Chinese influence stuff. And it's the West who that has like systematically reacted in ways that are not different from how like a white supremacist would react. And that's a problem. And that's where New Zealand's opportunity is, is like, is it possible to take the China challenge seriously from an anti-racist standpoint? I, I think people in America would say like, no, it's not. Or they'd say that they are anti-racist when they're clearly not. And so this is the window. This is a chance to model good strategy in essence, you know, because it's not just like a moralistic thing like, oh, we shouldn't want to be racist. It's that if you fail to control for like the racist reaction that you have to China, you will end up undermining yourself because you're going to stoke far right populism in your own country. You know, this will hurt democracy if you don't control for anti, if you don't take an anti-racist sort of control measure somehow in your response. And like, I feel like everybody's, I haven't seen the word anti-racism in the China discourse, like at all, you know? And so do uh, you think that like New Zealand will pull through with that? Like what you just uh, described or probably not? I don't know, man. I don't know. The only okay. people who seem to care about China in New Zealand are the people who are like longing for the Victorian empire and shit, you know? I, I don't see a lot of sort of high-minded concern. It's it's like a baser fear, like a Winston Petersy kind of thing. It's the people who are like afraid of woke culture, or and who even use that phrase. You know, that's the <laughs> that's the oh, yeah. They shouldn't be able to own the China issue. You know. Let's do prediction market, where we get Van to predict outcomes from today's current events and keep track of them. All right, for prediction market this week, we have two questions. Question one, will we see any coalition return to Afghanistan following the recent revelation that without help, uh, government forces in Kabul will be under Taliban control by the end of July? 
Yeah, dude, Taliban has not wasted any time. It feels a no, little it's bit exactly what you predicted, by <laughs> yeah. the way, man. So this is this is your prediction market coming correct. Yeah, don't feel good about it. Um, it's a little Vietnam worry war e in that sense the prediction almost seemed too obvious as long as the taliban existed like as long as we didn't eliminate them they were going to contest kabul's control of afghanistan they already had territory within afghanistan like we did the, the the formal government didn't even have full territorial control of the country so the idea that the taliban would be kept in a box without the u.s is farcical. We're seeing that now, the march to Kabul. They will be in control soon. July seems very fast. Um, will that trigger a re-intervention? I feel like no one's got the stomach for this, you know? Because if, no. N- there's no winning in the, in- like you intervene, your intervene, your intervention is only successful as long as you stay there forever. And then as soon as you leave, it's going to be the same shit, you know? So um, there has to be a different kind of solution. Like a coalition intervention is just not mm. not in the cards. And this next one's going to, this is for my um, conspiracy theorist friends. You know, a little uh, part of me wants this to be connected, but I, I have to ask. Will we see any reaction or response from the United States following the revelation that one of the bodyguards implicated in the assassination of the Haitian president Sorry, listeners, I can't pronounce his name without making me sound like a Neanderthal. Jovenel Moyes, following the revelation that one of the people that assassinated that guy was a DEA informant and asset. And will we see any response or reaction from the United States to that revelation before August? So I won't, this is a crazy story, by the way, but I won't, I don't think we'll see a U.S. reaction to the like conspiracy theory claim about its involvement, like secret CIA hitman kind of CIA thing. did it. Yeah. Like, CIA. I know that's where a lot of people's minds are at and possibly even yours with this question. <laughs> they came for Chain, they came for him too. Yeah. I mean, who, like, if, if 20 years from now we found that out, it totally wouldn't surprise me, but um, I'm trying to not engage in conspiracy theories. So, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so um, the... I don't think we'll see a U.S. response to that specific claim. There will be U.S. responses to the fallout because already there's um, some blood in the streets dynamic following the assassination. Regardless of whether there is like a specific pushback or not, that's pretty nuts. There's a informant yeah. and operative killed a president. That's that's Reagan level shit. With. Mercenaries from another country, right? Like, yeah, part of the team was ex-Columbia soldiers. Like, this is this is a Netflix movie waiting to happen. It it really is. Well, that's prediction market this week. Time for sale Twitter, where we curate the best and worst of Twitter, so that you don't have to. All right, stay off Twitter this week. I just got one quick one, um, partly because we have a giant backlog of Ask Me Anything questions. Um, But this one is from Chris Clary, friend of the pod, professor at University of Albany. And um, he's responding to this reporter who is uh, reporting a scoop about the Tennessee Department of Health halting all vaccine outreach to kids. Right. And not just vaccines for COVID-19, but vaccines for all diseases because of uh, GOP pressure. And so Chris Clary is responding to this and he's like, every day, Republican leaning foreign policy elites wake up and tell themselves if they just get the number of U.S. aircraft carriers right, they can help win the U.S. competition with China. All the while, the Republican Party is hollowing out the core of American power at home. And leeches, actual leeches. Eh? This is fucking the thing. This is the the through line. This is the core. What's going on here? Narrative that like everyone's fucking missing while we're twiddling our thumbs and shit. And part of it is like Republican militarism is so bad that it's like boresighted on these old classical military questions about, for example, the number of aircraft carrier investments you have to make, right? And literally. 
53% of Republicans just polled said that Trump is, quote, the one true president, right? So they live in conspiracy theory world. They are, they are literally making decisions that are killing kids in the heartland of the country, stopping them from getting vaccines for COVID and other, other diseases. What do they mean, one true president? Like, do they realize it's not an eternal title, away? Oh, it like, is now, buddy. It is now. What the fuck? It is in QAnon world, dude. That's the fucked up... Th- I mean, that's like... How many things about this are fucked up? But, like, nobody's talking about this, right? Like, we still get these fucking... No offense to War on the Rocks. We get these fucking War on the Rocks pieces litigating, like, oh, which frigate should we buy? Oh, which piece of fucking techno legislation should we support? And, like, should we make amendments to the Pacific Deterrence Initiative and all this shit? It's all completely orthogonal slash fuels... This fucking Republican machine that's killing people at home and actively opposing democracy. What do we care about building the military floor when we're just going to hand it over to these people who say that America is not a democracy, you know? And in the meantime, by the way, they're killing people in their own country. And we still care about China more? What the fuck, man? Also, this is why I feel like New Zealand and other countries need to step up on China and be the ones to, like, figure out the China threat because America cannot be responsible for the China problem. They're too fucked up on their own. And the China rivalry feeds all these like negative power dynamics in America that are killing American democracy in front of our eyes. And so like, it's just, it should, it's like other countries who are in good standing and have their minds right need to be the ones to take care of China because America's too fucked up. Anyways, Chris brought all this to the fore with this tweet. So Shout out. Okay, cool. So my two for the week, uh, I've got one from Robbie Shilliam and one from at Lawboyesque. So my first tweet from Robbie Shilliam, who is a professor of international relations in the Department of Political Science at John Hopkins University, had a pretty, what I thought was pretty thought-provoking and honestly kind of onto it. He goes, we need to teach international relations by imagining ourselves in the worlds of our students will be in 10 years time, not via the obsessions that we got taught 20 plus years ago. Just to say also that teaching is not the same as researching, even if related. We don't need to have students unnecessarily constrained by the legacies of the field, certainly undergrad, even grad, at least to some extent. Mm. Thoughts, man? Yeah. So Robbie's like a, a critical theory guy and very smart on uh, all the right stuff, basically. Like he gets the post-colonial literature really well. Uh, he's he's a pretty well-known guy. And this is spot on, right? Like this tweet was pretty viral uh, because I think a lot of us who both study or teach or research in IR, we feel like we've got all this fucking baggage that constrains us, weighs us down, the paradigm wars and all this stuff. And there is a question that I think a lot of us who teach this, we wonder about like, you have, you do have to teach, like this tweet is not licensed to just like forget everything you know and to teach them your fucking imagination, right? Like that's not what this is. I don't think that's what he's saying either. I think what this is, is like, we can't only be teaching shit like the paradigm wars. We can't only be teaching shit like democratic peace theory, right? That shouldn't be the, it shouldn't even be center of that education process. Like, what is it that students need to know if they want to go into careers where IR knowledge might be useful? Well, one of the things that we know for sure is that IR knowledge is not very useful for the practice of foreign policy, you know, unfortunately. And so it kind of depends on like what students want to do with this. But I do think there's something to be said for that, this, you know, potential future marriage between IR on the one hand and then the field of futures studies, because there's such a net, they don't talk to each other at all, but there's a real compliment there. Like future studies is the, the academy doesn't take it very seriously because it's like a field of practice. They don't do a lot of knowledge building, right? They're just not engaged in that. And then IR, it's the opposite. It's not taken seriously in the field of practice, but it is the sort of dominant thing in the academy. And so it's like there's so much potential if you could sort of kind of marry these things together because future studies is the only space where the imagination is taken seriously 
in a systematic way. And since we know that we can't predict the future uh, and we fucking suck at it, then there, this is, we, we have, we need, we need some speculation. We need some unmoored thinking to supplement what is very sort of Victorian type thinking about theory. That's interesting. Van, just out of curiosity, do you see any exceptions to this in the field? Are there specific programs anywhere that are trying to merge and think creatively about getting past this disciplinary divide? Yeah, they're not top places, but they're still legit. Like Johns Hopkins, um, not SICE in Washington, D.C., but Johns Hopkins up in uh, Baltimore, where, where incidentally where Robbie is, they are pretty good at um, sort of teaching it's their the theoretical basis is i think mostly critical theory but it's uh a exposure to the literature and a thinking about the world including through things like vehicles like science fiction that don't put boundaries on what could emerge in the future and there is a recognition that like the way we think about the future is going to end up shaping it. And so the more that we project into the future what happened before, the more we're sort of self-entrapping ourselves, you know. Um, and then University of Hawaii, um, I've got a buddy, Jairus Grove, who's a very innovative thinker. And their political science department at University of Hawaii actually does have a, a futures center. And they do some pretty creative, innovative, imaginative work that a lot of it, which is dystopian, frankly, um, but about IR. So like they're in the IR kind of field, but they're not just making you eat a bunch of large end analyses. They're not teaching you middle range theory kind of stuff. It's not paradigm war shit. Very different, right? That's kind of novel. On to my second tweet. So this one's from at Lawboy-esque. Like, I wasn't 100% sure who runs this account, so I can't give proper creds. All we know is that they're a self-proclaimed America's daintiest lawyer. Did you say dingiest lawyer? Daintiest lawyer. Daintiest. Sorry. Yeah. Daintiest. Yeah, I wasn't sure. I was like, I had no idea what that means, but I was, I was going to run with it. So the following tweet was because I thought it was both funny and, like, pretty good, pretty spot on. So the account tweeted... 90% of U.S. foreign policy is violently cutting countries off from the rest of the world and then talking shit about how poor they are. So on a scale of one to 10, Van, how much do you think this is right? 47. <laughs> um, yeah, this is, it's, this is very true, of course. Uh, the tough thing is that like, it's hard to argue against this being true. You can only argue like, well, it's not the whole story. Or like, there's more to it than that. Or that's too simple. But it's not wrong. And the fact that it's not wrong, the fact that there is truth in this, is really hard to digest if you have any opinions that like support the exercise of U.S. power. And I, I'm not 100%, but I think he's like subtweeting what's going down with Cuba right now. Because America's sanctions regime is very much on the table. And of course, America's been sanctioning Cuba for you know, two generations since the beginning of the Cold War. And uh, it's been to absolutely no effect. It's been bad for the people, just as the Castro regime has been bad for the people. Like, it's a remarkably unfree place. And um, the within the left, there's huge debates about this specific questions that reflect larger cleavages within the left about the merits of of sanctions, of U.S. power. There's a lot wrapped up in this. And so, like, people are freaking out right now about Cuba questions after not caring at all for a long, long time. They suddenly care. And one of the reasons they suddenly care is because the issue of, like, everybody wants to stand with the people or claim Reagan fucking claimed that he stood with the people, right? But then he would arm the dictators who oppressed the people, Right. Or you uh, sanction the dictator who oppressed the people, but only if they're a leftist dictator. Right. And so this is there's a lot of like pathologies within the left, but also coming from the right about this question. And so I read Law Boy's tweet in that in that context, but it obviously carries much further. Um, and so like what you think about the, the truth of this statement, 90 percent of U.S. foreign policy is violently cutting countries off from the rest of the world and then talking shit about how poor they are. Like, 
if you think this is true, you got to act on it. You know, there's no way you can think this is true and valid, or at least I would hope not. Yeah, I I, I wonder if the 90% he's alluding to is purely focused on U.S. sanctions policy towards quote unquote rogue regimes. I mean, it overlooks a great deal of foreign policy that revolves around other things like humanitarian assistance, democracy assistance, you know, um, uh, work in Africa that doesn't involve sanctions or um, labeling rogue regimes. But if you look at our policy towards Cuba, Iran, North Korea, Myanmar, you know, we, we have never really explored diplomatic tools beyond sanctions. Um, so I think it absolutely pertains on, on that level. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think where there's room to quibble is the 90%, but in a spiritual sense, it's right. Right. Or like the emotional load of that is correct. Yeah. No, no uh, disagreement for me. Um, I'm not a huge proponent of sanctions and don't think they're wholly effective. Yeah. Nor is uh, Cuba a national security threat. I mean, let's be honest, looking at a tiny island <clears throat> off the coast of Florida and, and you know, labeling yeah. it socialist, et cetera, et cetera, is one thing. But um you know, I, I don't think uh, it poses uh, any national security threat to the United States territory. Yeah, that was something that I thought Biden was going to come back on. Uh, one of Trump's last moves in office was to reintroduce Cuba to the, I think it's like National Terrorism Registry or something like State Sponsors of Terrorism yeah. the list, and they haven't taken them off yet. I thought that was going to be one of the first things the Biden administration was going to do, but they haven't yet. I mean, nobody had a problem with Obama and Ben Rhodes opening up Cuba. Like, that was a very popular move. It was like one of the most popular foreign policy things that the U.S. did. And that involved not just engaging with the Castro regime, but like moving very close to just fully normalized relations, including sanctions relief, you know, people to people interactions. And like people weren't up in arms about that. But now all of a sudden that there are like mass protests in Cuba and Black Lives Matter issued a statement saying that sanctions need to be relieved and they failed the statement failed to criticize the Castro regime. And so like people are up in arms about that. But it's like the heart of this thing is sanctions policy. The way you anybody reacts to the specific Cuba situation, well, that's just a prism on you. Like because like Hunter says it it's not a national security threat and so everything if to the extent you have an opinion about cuba if you're not actually cuban yourself it's a hundred percent because of your own your own hang-ups or your own assumptions or biases or whatever you know yeah i mean if you want an interesting glimpse into um the right uh, and where they stand on this just look at marco rubio's uh twitter feed the past um few days it's been nonstop Cuba um, and and attacking the Biden administration's lack of action. Hashtag fuck little Marco. Fucking hate that guy. All right. Time for armchair analysis, where we look at a different article each week. All right. For this week's armchair analysis, we've selected an article by New York Times writer at large, Charlie Warzel. First of all, the piece is called We Are Not Ready. Um, this is on his Substack, And I've enjoyed reading Charlie's work on QAnon the past couple of years in the New York Times. This piece, We Are Not Ready, on his Substack is about climate change, climate crisis, and hyper objects. And it's kind of a piece he had been mulling for a long time, it seems, and was conflicted about whether or not to put out in the first place and has finally gotten around to it. Um, he starts off by premising the piece saying, these days, I find myself increasingly caught between the worry that I'm being overly alarmist and the fear that I'm stating the obvious, right? And I think something he's pointing at throughout this piece is the sort of dilemma that complex crises present to journalists in whether or not it's worth writing about in the first place, whether everyone else is sort of already on the same page thinking, yes, this is a crisis, or whether there's so much partisan divide, we don't even know what to call the thing. So he starts out sharing this bizarre story. Wisconsin in 2020, a couple armed men and an oath keeper guarding a shopping center ended up befriending protesters who I, I take it are on the opposite side of the spectrum. But this is such a, uh, an exception to what he sees going on online in the disinformation sphere, QAnon, you know, cultists. And um, so he, he's been 
dealing with this anxiety over online disinformation and movements merging with real world violence. And he ties this into what he calls hyper objects, primarily looking at climate change later in this piece, um, because he sees the same sort of dilemma. As I was saying, um, hyper objects pose a challenge for journalists and analysts to uh, describe to the public in a nuanced way, something that, that gets across an important message um, when you see so many politicians, um, you know, we, we uh, I, I don't want to name names, but people like Ted Cruz, for instance, mm. uh, pointing at immigrants, uh, you know, downplaying the reality of climate change and just sort of simplifying, stupidifying, dumbing down the facts to get home uh, a more persuasive, cynical point that sells race as the issue, the woke liberal agenda as the issue, you know, anti-vax rhetoric has spread because it it cuts through and, and looks past all the scientific expertise. And at the same time, the left or objective journalists um, have not been able to combat this because of this notion of unthinkability, right? It's almost too obvious to say that we are literally dealing with the potential undermining of democratic institutions and the erosion of democracy and public trust in America. You know, um, the news had the same dilemma in whether or not to call Trump a liar or whether or not to call him a racist. He ends by saying the problem isn't legitimate nuance. It's when decision makers in the media space use the existence of uncertainty as an excuse not to say what needs to be said. So the big picture is clear but nuance is getting lost in the debate. And a lot of this is because of online disinformation, but also just the, the news TV that we uh, are so addicted to. So back to the title, in the end, he's saying, we're not ready for these complex crises like climate change, existential threats, and uh, the online disinformation, um, the combination of which present these hyper objects that he's dealing with. So again, I thought it was a good piece. I always like reading Charlie's pieces. I think he does a great job of distilling these complex crises into effective and simple enough language that the lay person can understand some of these bigger picture issues. Yeah, I have mixed feelings in general about the newsletter trend, but this was really good. And what was weird is that this piece didn't have like a really strong through line like there wasn't it wasn't the templated kind of op-ed thing where you have an argument you have your news peg you have you, you like state the argument a couple times you provide a couple supporting examples you make an acknowledgement about like the counterpoint but then explain why it's not good enough and then you sort of put a bow on it and like there's that templated way of doing op-eds and like because this is a newsletter it doesn't do that at all and the pro and the con is that it's kind of, it's a little rambly, like there's, it's stream of consciousness on some level, but it's a stream of consciousness that reveals, I mean, our headspace. Like I, the, one of the things, one of many things I liked about this piece is that he talks about how much he struggled with writing about these big existential problems that we're facing, that democracy is facing, that civilization is facing, right, in 2020. And he was like kind of paralyzed from writing about it. And he was still writing his shit in the New York Times, but it was at that almost technocratic level. You know, you're doing what you're trained to do and proficient in, but you're failing to address the forest in favor of the trees, you know, and like. There were times when I felt like that too. There were so many times I tried to like pick up my pen or sit down at the computer and my like emotions and my a lot of times fears about what was happening was just like prevent it was creating a kind of writer's block. But it was only a writer's block on what he was calling the hyper object. It's on the thing that is the existential threat, you know, the thing that's too big for us to address. That's so in our face, but also so not addressed, not talked about really, you know? And um, so it wasn't writer's block. And like, apparently a lot of writers have went through this in 2020. It wasn't writer's block period. Like we all still wrote stuff, but we, we wrote the stuff that we could do well or knew well that failed to account for how the larger paradigm that we're working within is what's getting fucked up and changing, you know? 
So I, I thought it was great because like it, it shined a light both on like that personal level problem, but also the fact that like our tools for explaining ourselves, journalism is not set up to add to do justice to the big problems. And the big problems are what makes everything else kind of irrelevant at the end of the day. So I thought it was great. Yeah, I, I share your feelings on, uh, I mean, I'm relatively clueless with Substack, like I don't subscribe to any other newsletters, but it's an effective medium for just sort of the blog style um, dissemination, right? Just get your thoughts on the page and you don't have to worry about that sort of editorial style and guidelines. Yeah. Uh, but also it's the kind of piece that would never be published in like foreign policy, for instance, uh, because it's just too meta, right? Perhaps long form pieces in, in the Atlantic or, or New Yorker would, would touch on this, but even then, um, I don't think uh, an editor would go for a term like hyper objects, right? Yeah, there's just the the whole like publishing industry right now. We've settled into these patterns that, um, I mean, you could almost think of them as Victorian, where it's like, it's fixed, it's static. It's like we're all wearing corsets while we're writing. Um, you have to be expressing your ideas in a particular way so that they're digestible in a familiar way to the audience. But um, you lose a lot of truth in that process, and it it really um, limits the kinds of things that you can say and the kinds of arguments that you can make. There's a little bit more room at places uh, for like creative expression, if you want to call it that, um, or untemplated writing at places like The New Yorker and The Atlantic. But those places are the ultimate gatekeep, gatekept places. I mean, like nobody can publish there, you know. I got published in the Atlantic once and it's because one of the editors asked me to do a piece for them, but I had pitched them many times and I never got in, you know? And to this day, I've, I've never tried to pitch the New Yorker because what's, what are the fucking odds of that? You know, but I'm not, I've never been in the New Yorker. Right. And if I were to pitch a piece, it's hundred percent chance it's going to get fucking rejected, you know? So the places where there's, there's room to write in a way that's not narrowly formatted are also places where nobody can publish unless you're like a giant celebrity. So, I mean, I, the Substack world seems to be like the alternative. You know, the one good thing that I point to is like, or promising thing, the duck of Minerva, Dan Nexon has sort of re relaunched that it was a like an academic ir political science blog back in the day and he was the founder of it and it it was great at letting people who were smart publish kind of whatever they want whatever way they wanted it wasn't really censored or formatted the whole point the whole conceit of that kind of blog space was like we all have unformed ideas that we want to get out there and we don't want those to be like things that promote our career or condemn our career. It's just part of having a conversation to think through shit, you know, and it should be electrifying and controversial and shouldn't destroy ourselves in the process. And um, the way the formatted, templated, fixed, narrow writing works, including a lot of other blogs, there's a lack of free thought. And Duck of Minerva is like trying to open back up that space. So like in a way, it's like, they're doing the newsletter thing, but they're doing it as a blog format instead of like to your inbox, you know? So hopefully cool. they would be cool. Yeah. It sounds more like a, a bit of a, like a democratic uh, monkey cage. <laughs> yes. Basically letting the monkeys out of the cage, so to speak. All right. Time for ask me anything where people ask me anything. So for AMA this week, we have eight questions. First one is from Mad Thatcher. Van, what is your take on private military contractors, mercs, effective strategy or neoliberal nightmare? Well, it, it can be both. It's generally a, a bad idea, right? It's basically um, money or it's like violence with a dollar sign, which is obviously fucking terrible. And they're not as good. Private, private mercenaries are never as good as... Uh, a genuinely trained nationalist force if they have the same level of capability. Um, so like it could be useful if you need to buy, buy power, you know, and you don't have it organically, but um, it's dangerous. They're not loyal to you. 
it is definitely a neoliberal nightmare. Um, one of my worries about like the Koch brothers world, like they're very focused on demilitarizing U S foreign policy. And I am too. My worry, this is a little conspiracy Jackson, but is that they want a world where security still has to be provided for via military means, but yeah, exactly. that it will be done by fucking East India companies. You know what I mean? And not by national militaries. And like, that is a nightmare. Second question is from, sorry for mispronouncing this name, Charles Yun um, from Hancock University of Foreign Studies. What are your thoughts on the Korean language and your experience learning it? How did you come to study it? And how often do you use it now in your daily life and in your research? Yeah, good question. So when I ran this, I have to briefly get into my biography. I ran away from home when I was 17. I joined the Air Force and uh, I wanted to be James Bond. The, you know, the military recruiter was like, what the fuck does that mean? And he's like, actually, we have this uh, career specialty called cryptologic linguist. That's what James Bond was in the Royal Navy. And so I was like, all right, well, I'll take a test to do that. And uh, I passed the test. So I went to language training at this place called the Defense Language Institute after passing a series of tests. And uh, they assigned a language to me based on how they measured my aptitude for language and what they needed. And that's how I got slotted into Korean. I didn't know any Korean before that. Uh, I had no real exposure to it uh, that was meaningful. But uh, they trained me up from scratch. And my only job for a year and a half eight hours a day was to learn Korean and the defense language Institute has like, it's a fucking dream. Like that's like the shit like militarism fucking paid off, man. Somebody got something good out of it. So uh, <laughs> the, that was like a dream come true. That basically changed my life in a lot of ways. Um, and DLI, the place where I was studying happened to have like world-class language instructors I think one of the things that's generally true is that the quality of instruction that you get from a teacher matters a lot. One of the reasons why I think I suck at math is because I had shitty math teachers my whole life. And one of the reasons why I became really good at Korean was because I had excellent Korean teachers at this institution, you know? That's how I came to study Korean. Uh, it was hard, but I have a natural aptitude for, for language. So it wasn't as hard for me as it was for other people. And, you know, once I went to my job and was stationed in Korea, I got to actually like use it for my career. Now, I don't use it that much, you know, like in my research, it's not that important. Like it depends on what what kind of question you're asking. Sometimes it's important to be able to parse through like Nodong uh, Shinmun, the North Korean newspapers or something, you know, if, if you want to read a statement by Kim Jong-un in native Korean as opposed to the translated version. Like, what do you, what extra insight do you get out of that? I personally think it's like marginal extra insight, but it's definitely a positive, you know? And it's good to have subject matter expertise as a starting point in your career in something, something, anything. And for me, that something was, you know, Korean, Korean studies, Korean language and culture. And like, that was my claim to subject matter expertise in the beginning um and then you sort of blossom out from there so i definitely don't use korean in my daily life uh with research it's hit and miss especially like since most of my research doesn't even focus on korea it's irrelevant to that stuff obviously well then i don't know if you just realize that you've done this but you've admitted that the united states military has like a harry potter sorting hat system except <laughs> for future assets and agents Yep. Never thought yeah. of it. Yeah. Oh Never thought of it like that. So the third question is from the Strategy Bridge author. I saw on Twitter that you and Jeff Jeffrey Messinger are doing a book on strategy. The dialogue you guys have been having publicly is fascinating. Care to say more? Yeah, it's it's a, too premature to talk about it. Really, um, we're just working on a book on making the case for how we people should understand what strategy actually is and how to judge the difference between good and bad strategy, uh, which is a potentially a huge contribution to this world of like strategic theory. Uh, I don't want to say too much right now. Yeah. But if you, I guess if you're following either of us on Twitter, you'll see our dialogue. We're having it. We're having 
sort of debates and figuring things out for the book in real time. Some via email, but some of it is publicly since we're both on Twitter a lot. Sounds super interesting. I'm, I'm looking forward to that one. Me too. Fourth question is from Emily Tatton. Big fan of the pod and an early career professional in U.S. national security. We're participating in a fellowship program at a conservative think tank like the Talk Foundation or the Foundation for the Defense of Democracies have a negative impact on future job prospects that are either nonpartisan or democratic. Yes. Um, unfortunately, the answer is yes. If you do conservative gigs or gigs at conservative institutions, it will have a negative impact on your future in non-conservative circles. Strictly speaking, you can get nonpartisan like civil servant jobs. It won't it won't harm your prospects for that. But if you're trying to work on a democratic political campaign or at a progressive leaning think tank or something like that, it's a huge it's it's it blacklists you basically. And it didn't necessarily used to be like that because the Washington left was right of center. And so it didn't like it didn't used to matter very much because everyone was a fucking right winger, it seemed like. But uh, that's that's changed quite a lot now. So the other thing, though, is like you have to pay the rent. You know what I mean? If you have to work at the fucking Foundation for Defense of Democracies, which is a neocon think tank, because you have to pay the bills and the alternative is that you starve. Obviously, you go work at the think tank, dude, you know, like try to stay as you know moralistic as you can but you gotta you gotta eat but if you can avoid doing that it's probably smart to avoid it fifth question i have is from tommy bryan i saw viping Narang having a discussion about china's 120 new missile silos and was wondering what she thought about the chinese nuclear missile thing as well as viping himself nope he's vipin's a good dude very smart yeah, we have mind meld about many nuclear issues. And he had very smart takes whenever this new revelation came out about uh, China constructing 120 new missile silos. The novelty of this, or like Hawks, people like fucking Matt Kronig, they're up, they're like, oh, see, this is the reason why we need to spend $1.5 trillion and then some on, you know, U.S. nuclear modernization and all this shit, like even though the U.S. has nuclear superiority already at a rate of like five to one compared to China, something ridiculous. And so they're using this as like a scaremongering thing. Also, this is what happens when you have the rivalry frame with a country like China. Every single little fucking thing becomes an excuse to have a five alarm fire and to spend more money and to be more racist and to be more militaristic. This is the Pandora's box that opens with rivalry. Rant over. So having said that, Vipin and a lot of other nuclear scholars, literally all of them, except for Matt Kronig, they have come out and explained that like China is doing this as a direct reaction to America's more muscular nuclear posture the past four years, right? And all of these missile silos don't have missiles. Only a fraction of them do. And the dilemma for the U.S., for U.S. nuclear planners is like, we don't know which ones are dummies and which ones have nuclear armed missiles, right? And the reason why the Chinese would do that is because it increases the survivability of their nuclear arsenal. Why would they want to increase the survivability of their nuclear arsenal? To deter a U.S. nuclear first strike, right? And if America is sane, it will never actually contemplate a nuclear first strike. Right, which is an op-ed I wrote recently, but whatever. They're basically, what Vipin and everyone else is arguing is like, there's really nothing to see here. Like, you pay attention to it, right? But it's not a reason to worry. It doesn't undermine American nuclear superiority, which itself should be contestable and questioned and interrogated. But it's a reaction to what we do. So we need to understand that the more hockey we are, the more hockey we make our enemies be. This is so obvious, dude. Like, how could it be otherwise? The sixth question is from Anonymous. I love your politics, and I mostly agree with your takes on China. But one thing I don't really understand is the thing you've said a few times about how domestic inequality fuels Chinese imperialism and nationalism 
rivalry. Can you explain this? This is this takes too long of an explanation given what we have to go through, but like very briefly, domestic inequality at home and abroad is the wellspring of fascism, national ethno-nationalism especially. The the problems that we have with China are at root a problem of domestic inequalities. Um, that's where empire itself comes from, you know? The 10-second version of this is basically like Xi Jinping benefits from rivalry because rivalry stokes nationalism. The ethno-nationalism, Xi Jinping's fascism, these are, these are the bases of his legitimacy in a system where uh, he benefits and oligarchs benefit, but the average worker in China does not. And so in order to sort of keep workers oppressed, repressed, but still have everything hang together and remain in power, you need that other, right? And it's the same, if there's a mirror image problem in the US where like, it's the rivalry with China that legitimates fuckheads like Rubio and Josh Hawley and the QAnon people and the Bannons, you know? These fucks would not have any leg to stand on in Washington polite society if it wasn't for the fact that they're like, quote unquote, bipartisan about China competition, right? But they're they're eating away American democracy at the same time that they're externalizing the threat thing with China, you know? Um, and so it's domestic inequality that leads in other countries too, that leads the attraction of uh, Chinese capital. So Chinese oligarchs fucking take money basically from the people in China, and then they allocate it overseas in projects that benefit oligarchs in other countries disproportionately. And then because China gets an economic foothold in these countries and there's a payday at the top, with corrupt officials and kleptocrats that dis it, that dislocates, disenfranchises local people in these other countries, that creates interests that China then has to protect. It create it creates distortions in the political and diplomatic calculations of these countries, and it's that which we call influence that we are worried about. China could not really be engaging in this and would not have a need to be stoking these kinds of ethnic. Uh, claims to assertiveness uh, all this, this this basket of like the china problematic which involves a lot of things at root it's domestic inequalities man that's the wellspring so there's more to say about this i'm going to try to write something about this because fucking a lot of people just don't get it but yeah it's important the seventh question we have is from shabby graham New Zealand's independent foreign policy. Why do you hate it? What should we be doing differently? Very on the nose. It's not so, I mean, I guess I do hate it. Very briefly, again, independent foreign policy doesn't mean anything. If you understand international relations even a little bit, you know that there's no such thing as like state independence. It's you're, You exist in a relational context. So like at an epistemic level, it's actually stupid, but also functionally, it means whatever you want it to mean, which means that it's not a concept. It's a slogan. A slogan that's devoid of concept is very problematic, you know? Um, and so I hate it because of that, but also because if we are at an inflection point and things are so fucking, you know, pivotal and important right now, then we shouldn't be so conceptually lazy. New Zealand, I've said this before, New Zealand needs some kind of like project solarium. It needs serious strategic thinking and it's not happening there's no culture of it uh it wants to sort of muddle through and i don't know that's that i guess and the eighth and final question is also anonymous do you have thoughts about the recent piece in foreign policy on biden's rooseveltian foreign policy do you know how much this roosevelt comparison is shared about uh, shared among policymakers right now yeah so i i felt like th there's no such thing as a roosevelt doctrine i felt like that was very made up daniel dunney and john eikenberry wrote a piece in foreign policy asking the question of why there's not a roosevelt doctrine and arguing that there should be i feel like this is an attempt by dunney and eikenberry to sort of anchor liberal internationalism in a tradition that's not woodrow wilson 
because Woodrow Wilson was a uber racist and he had some a lot of bad ideas and so he's not held in high standing these days and so they want to save liberal internationalism and they're doing it by anchoring it to a new hero because uh roosevelt fdr is fairly popular right now and so that's all just like that's a political act it's a it's an awkward fit on foreign policy i'm not sure that actually biden is pursuing a rooseveltian foreign policy it's still even after reading the very long piece it's not clear to me what that should be or like what the fuck a rooseveltian foreign policy is since Roosevelt's foreign policy before World War II sucked, and then once World War II hit, it was just a war policy, you know? Um, so, like, anybody who is rational would have come up with similar decisions. What I do know is that I haven't seen anybody in the establishment really sort of cheerleading for this piece. So, like, I think this was this thing that Dudney and Eikenberry are doing it's not reflecting some groundswell of establishment opinion. It's like their own thing that they came up with. And some people like it. Some people hate it. Some people have mixed feelings about it. But like what it's not is like, oh, this is how the establishment thinks now. I think Dudney and Eikenberry want the establishment to now think like this is, is my, I guess, my take. All right, gang, that's going to do it. Buymeacoffee.com slash undiplomatic to send us coffees. And I forgot the other stuff. Catch you next time. Peace.